Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based organizations or groups in any way. And here we are. I got my co-host here, Ronnie, no matter what. What's up, Ron? What's happening, Jay? I mean, we're back again. I'm a... I it can, seems like we live in this room, right? I, yeah, I love it, it, dude. It does. Big shout out to Sanctuary Studios, Sanctuary Recovery Centers for letting us use their studio tonight Absolutely. to record the cast. And, uh, you know, here we are, man. It's Thursday. <laughs> recording an episode. Yes, sir. I mean, it's a dream, huh, brother? A, a dream. <laughs> and, and, and this guy over here, we're going to hear about him. But I admire this dude right here. He's a go-getter. He's, he's, a, he's a powerhouse in the recovery community. I hear his name a lot. Um I admire what he's doing, so I can't wait to hear his story. So we got Daniel B. here. I mean, uh. big Daniel's on the show. I mean, this dude, let me tell you something about this dude. So I was at a facility, <laughs> man, and, you know, I was doing some service work and, you know, bringing meetings into this facility, and there was an opportunity, and I came to this meeting, and uh, Daniel was sharing, and me and Ron, were, Ron and I were talking about this before. You know, we do a lot of speaker meetings ourselves, right. and I could be an extremely tough critic. It's a character <laughs> defect of mine, right? Like... <laughs> You know, you got you got to really grab a hold of me right away. I got a high, I got a high standard yeah. for a speaker meeting, and when I heard Daniel share, man, it blew me away. Uh, Daniel, he he actually came into work right because our desks are right by each other. He came into work and he, and he and he was telling me about it, and I was like, yeah, really? To get Jay wound up like that first thing in the morning, talking about a speaker meeting the night from before. So I, yeah. I was pretty excited. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, it was an excellent Thanks, speaker bro. meeting. So we got Daniel on the show today. Daniel, what's up, man? What's up, brother? I mean, here we are. Yeah, here we are. I mean, we finally made it happen. We've been talking about this for a while, trying to get you onto the show. We finally had an opening, and you got down here, man. I'm extremely grateful you took the time to come out here. But, you know, we're, you know, this show's about having people on who are all-stars in their community. It's not always about recovery. It's just about people bringing that light to the dark areas of life and bringing things from the dark to the light or shining their light or using their past experiences to bring light to others. That's what this thing's all about. Daniel's a prime example of it. His program today, the sponsees that he has, the action steps that he takes daily, it's the blueprint, man. So we want to get him on the show today to share that blueprint. But we don't show up, Ron. We, we both know we don't show up to, to treatment facilities or AA meetings when we're on a winning streak, right? Not at all. No. Right? I mean, you didn't come. <laughs> I mean, I might tell you I'm on a winning streak yeah. in the way I tell the story. Yeah. Uh, you might, you, uh, <laughs> we go back 12 years. It's been a long. We're finally on a winning streak, but we were on a 10-year losing streak. Losing brother. streak. I mean. But. If, but not according to the way we tell it. Yeah, but yeah. if you don't shoot, if you don't shoot, you can't score, brother. That's right, man. And we're shooters. So Daniel's going to take a shot today, and we're going to hear Daniel. his story. You know, and, and and my point is, is that you know to earn that. When I say earn, earn your seat in the fellowship or whatever a you choose to call your fellowship. To earn that seat, there's a lot you got to do. A lot of pain, a lot of desperation, um, a lot of trial and error. So we're going to hear a little bit about Daniel today. So. Daniel, why don't you take the opportunity just to you know tell everyone about the family dynamic, what it was like growing up for you? Because um, there's there's trauma, the the childhood, the family dynamic, the drug. I mean, there's just so much. Your story is so impactful. So why don't you just kind of give us just a just a look at what it was like growing up for you? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me here, guys. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, my life it seems like it's been a series of you know near death experiences. I've gone through that so many times. It's just, I know there's a God and I know that it's a miracle that I'm right here right now with you guys mm. straight up. And so I thank God first and foremost for me being here and being able to do this and carry this message. The first attempt against my life was by my own mother, you know, ironically. And it's because my, my dad had been divorced from her for about 10 years before I was conceived. He had four kids with her. I was the last of four and he had another woman that was his legit wife. And so my mom was just his side piece. And he'd go over there and just hang out with the kids. And then he'd get with my mom and then bounce. And he'd just come back and forth. He did that for years to her. Um, but when she got pregnant with me, she was in denial. She would always tell me while I was growing up that the dates didn't match up, that she doesn't know how she ended up pregnant. That doesn't make any sense. She's like, I know he has to be your dad, but I wasn't with him. And, and and I had my period. 
you know, when when she got pregnant, she's like totally blown away. She's by like, nah, it. don't check out. Yeah, she's yeah, like, Matt, don't check don't out. Match right. So then, after a while, and I was developing, and she felt me moving around inside of her. She was like, oh hell no, not again, right? She didn't want to have another kid by this dude. So she tried to get an abortion, and um, a guy used to joke at the at the facility I was at, and he should be like, I'm I'm a grateful. Uh, a survivor of an abortion you know what i mean and like no dude that's really my life story <laughs> yeah, like i yeah. survived an abortion attempt my mom wanted to get rid of me and it just didn't happen they wouldn't do it for her so she carried me through um i put her through labor for 48 hours i guess you know to get back at her a little mm. bit that's a stretch you know that's and a stretch I was, I was born the last day of the year i was delivered on december 31st of 81 after that i never really bonded with her I remember vaguely certain things of me just hanging out with her when she would take me out to Wiener Schnitzel or something like that. But what I do remember most starkly in my child, early childhood was when she took me to, to live with my dad and his wife. And my sister, Joanna, was with me. And she's five years older than me, so she was about nine. I was four. Um, that's when I got to know who this man was. And he's an alcoholic, a Uh-oh. raging, Ooh. violent, belligerent, drunk but yet he was like Jekyll and Hyde because when he wasn't drunk, he was really nice. He liked to take us out and do things, take us on vacation, go visit family, play Mr. Nice Guy, buy the gifts, you know, Perfect do all that dad. stuff. Yeah, confusing. Yeah. And that's, confusing. so that's how he manipulated my mom for so long, you know, because he'd shower her with gifts and then be mean to her, cheat on her, leave her, and come back and do it all over again, you know. Um, with us, though, there was a lot of mental manipulation, lying, um, verbal abuse, physical abuse. My sister and I, we used to just try to cling to each other and help each other, and he'd beat us both down, you know, and we figured we'd share the beating so that he wouldn't just wear one of us out. Um, He lied to me and told me that my stepmom was my real mom, and he forced me to call her mother, and if my mom called on the phone, I had to call her by her first name. I had to call her Lynn. I couldn't call her mom because he'd beat my ass. He'd be on another line listening, and... My guess my mom didn't understand that. She thought that maybe I was upset, so she took it to heart, and she just kind of, like, drew back. Just fell back, right? Yeah, she didn't didn't want to continue to pursue a relationship because she felt, I guess, you know, rejected, and that's understandable. The one time that I did see her throughout those four years that I was with him in my early childhood, she showed up drunk because my mother's an alcoholic also. She showed up drunk with her boyfriend at the time. I opened the door, jumped in her arms, my dad came out, dude got into it with my dad. You know, they got in a little scuffle. He kicked my dad in the nuts. My dad went for a shotgun. Cops came and all that. Well, I got beat up for that after that, you know, because I was wrong for opening the door, you know. But I was just a kid, and I wanted to see my mom. Uh, my sister used to play songs, and we used to listen to oldies. And there's this song called Dry Your Eyes, and it's like an oldie, and it's about, you know, saying it says something like, Mother's got to go now. And it's really deep. It's really sad. It's like an ethereal song, you know, and as a child and and knowing that this lady's not my real mom and my real mom is not around and I can't connect with her. Like it was like something that for many, many years, even up until recently, I'd hear that song, dude, and it would just break me. Yeah, it just hit you right in the heart. Yeah. You got a song like that, Ron? Yeah. uh, Karen Carpenter. Uh, Karen Carpenter, I love you, mommy. And that hit, that yeah, hits you. Yeah, it hits me hard because my mom, you know, that was that was our song. Because at the end of that song, Karen Carpenter's real son says, "I love you, mommy." And that was whenever we'd hear that song in the car, I would be that little boy saying that at the end of the song, and it would just it just hit the strings, yeah, man. Yeah. But real quick, you know, I hear it. I hear that pain in your voice, right? How confusing that is for a child. Yeah, growing up, you know, you have all these mixed messages. We just want to be loved because yeah. at that age, you just want affection. You just don't want to be safe. And you didn't have that. You had your sister. Right. 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 It was just me and her, man. And and we were real close for a while. But eventually, you know, throughout the, the years of abuse and stuff, my sister even, you know, due to her own situation and the things that were happening to her. And a lot of this stuff, we talk about it now. And she tells me, like, don't you remember this, bro? And and I'm like, I don't. I really don't. There's certain things that I blocked out of my memory. And I think it's like a compartment a compartmentalization, mm-hmm. you know, thing that we do to survive certain traumas. Because I'll remember most of it, but I don't remember some particulars. Mm-hmm. And she tells me the particulars and they're just even worse, you know? And it's like, 
Um, she also was abused different in different ways by him. Um, at, at a point, she got to where, like, she wasn't so much friendly with me, and, and like, she became abusive towards me, too, you know, because she was dealing with a lot of anger. She's a little bit older. She got into her pre-adolescent teens, and she started, like, lashing out at me. So I was getting beat up by her while they were at work, and then they'd come home, and I'd get beat up again, you know what I'm saying, because she'd lie yeah. and tell them that I did something, so I... It cover her ass, and then you know. So, I was alone a lot, and and I felt really vulnerable, very weak. Um, just to give you a quick little idea of what kind of abuse went on, he was a, a Mexican, traditionally Mexican, you know, rancher type dude, and he liked eating fresh meat, freshly slaughtered meat. So he'd take us to the, he'd take me to the ranch with him in the morning. He'd like to go drink when he's hungover and get some goat milk with tequila mixed up. It's called pajaretes. It's like a Mexican elixir for when you're hungover you know what i mean coats oh, the stomach okay all right cheers the head you i know thought it was I mean? menudo i thought yeah, you could, that, that one too oh that right? one too okay yeah. i could have right. used that yeah you so could use that with your yeah. milk <laughs> yeah i hear you so we'd go over there and he'd do that and um i'd watch him slaughter cows man pigs goats whatever you know whatever he wanted and dramatic he'd, yeah he'd bring it he'd bring it home <laughs> and uh i remember him putting like the whole cow head the cow that i saw that was just alive and then they killed it and it's still kicking and twitching and they're cutting open its stomach and peeling back the skin and doing all that, you know, real graphic shit. Yeah. And <laughs> I couldn't when, do it, dude. I, I'll, fall, it in, I'll straight fall out. Yeah. Right. He puts it in the oven, bakes it for a while, pulls it out and it's just right there on the table, the eyeballs in there, the tongue in there, the brains in there. He's just getting pieces of cheek muscle and, you know, and he's like, here, you know, have some. And, and I would eat it, but I was really gris- <clears throat> grossed out by it yeah. you know what i mean what's and, that called the the meat the cheek there, there's a name for it because i went and had tacos yeah though. cabeza they call yeah. it cabeza yeah, yeah it's so like let me let me mix t- it all up yeah let me tell you a little something dude i couldn't have do it we were on a we were on a camping trip one time my boys are all hunters right you know what i mean they're like come on jay you can come go hunting with us i'm like yeah i'll go hunting with you sitting in tree stands for days and shit with a bow right yeah. well on this particular trip they get one right an elk we walk up on this elk, dude. I straight fall. I faint, bro. I'm like, boom, just fall over, dude. I couldn't even, yeah. I couldn't even see it, dude. I ain't got the stomach for that shit. Yeah. I don't, dude. Yeah. So I couldn't even imagine that at such a young age, dude. You know, just just going through with it. Yeah. So what other type types of uh, so abuse and trauma? He'd he'd bring the animals home. He'd kill the animals after I befriended him. I thought they were my pets. There was a time where he brought me puppies, like a series of puppies. There was about seven of them. My, and I recall them dying and me having to bury them, but my sister said that he would play Russian roulette, and I vaguely remember him pulling out a gun and pointing it at us. But she said he would play Russian roulette with us when he's drunk, and then he'd shoot the dogs, and that's how they all died. So we had a pet cemetery back there. They were mm. all my puppies, like seven of them. Uh, the last one, he just let me have it for a while. One night he wakes me up. He liked to play doctor. He'd always, you know, get the lab coat on, the gloves, and he'd bring us bring penicillin and B12 and stuff, and he'd give us shots and whatever, and... He he was just like that, and and so he woke me up one night and tells me to go with him in the garage. I go in the garage, and and my dog's on top of his workbench, on top of a hefty bag, and it's split down the middle, opened up with the organs on the side. And he's yelling at me, telling me that I killed the dog, and that's how he found out because he had opened him up, and did like an autopsy, and he's showing me this organ. He's like, "That's a tumor. You did that from kicking him." And I was like, "I never kicked my dog. You know, I love this dog." Yeah. And he's like, I saw you do it, you know, and and I was like, I saw how he was and what he just did. So I was like intimidated and afraid. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, I was yeah, just my bad. <laughs> yeah. So I went back to bed and I remember that night questioning reality. Like maybe I did do it, you know, yeah. blaming myself. Uh, he beat me with a with a uh, extension cord or a cable cord. Tell me to go outside and, and grab a stick. And I think a skinnier one's going to hurt less. But I learned real quick that that's yeah, not that's the case. Not, yeah. yeah. Those are like whips, you know, they'll cut you up. Um, he'd have us do like different corporal type punishments, uh, leaning up against the wall, like in a sitting position to your knees, to your legs buckle, kneeling on the carpet, like a, uh, one of those doormats that you, that's real rough that you put outside your house to yeah. get like the mud and stuff off. Yeah. Kneel, kneel on, on one of those. Yeah. Yeah. For hours at a time. Mm. Um, he made, you know, my sister and I do yard work and then lick the sweat off each other's back cause we were arg- arguing or something. Uh, he'd put me on food restrictions. I had to eat like pea soup while they would eat pizza, chicken. Right at the same dogs. table too, right? Yeah, at the yeah. same table and all that. And this one time I was just, I was over it. I had to eat that pea soup every day, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for like a few days. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And he's sitting down drinking in front of me. And I was just waiting. I just hoping that he would send me back to my room, you know, but he wasn't. He forced me to eat it. So by then it had already gotten cold and it was gross and I ate it. 
I tried to take it down and I came, it came right back up. Right. Um, and when he jumped up and grabbed that, that cord, he called it a chicote. Chicote means like whip. And he would make this out of a, an extension cord or something and just wrap it up a couple of times. And he, he beat me with that. So when he jumped up to grab it, like he was going to hit me with it, I just ate the vomit. You know what I mean? I just mm. went back and ate that. And it's, it's a trip because I, I distinctively remember that the second time around, it tasted better because it was at least a little warm. Because it had been inside me, you know what I mean. I don't know if to worry to laugh or cry. <laughs> I mean, God, I, it wasn't bro, that bad, yeah. bro. My throat I'm, when I'm I threw it up, you. it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Um, and he let me go back to my to my room after that. You know that saved me. But that was the kind of terror and fear that he had instilled in me. I was willing to do anything and everything I could to avoid his rage and his punishment. And I don't know why he would beat me so much, but he would tell me that I deserved it. That it was what a good a good son needed. And if I was a good boy that I would thank him for it. And so he had me under that type of control. And after he'd beat me for seemingly no reason that I can think of, at least not at that for at that severity of it, you know, I would thank him and say, thanks dad. I deserve that. You know, and that's the kind of mind control trip I was on with him. Ultimately my sister ran away and then not long after that, I stopped coming home because I'd get beat up for coming home late, but I was dragging my feet because I didn't want to go yeah, back to that go house. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would I go yeah. home to that? So I finally just got out of there, went to live with my mom, and at the time she had a new husband, um, which was the guy that got into it with my dad that one day. And um, my mom just didn't bond with me, man. She was more interested in her husband, you know? Yeah. And And I needed that. I needed to bond with somebody, one of my parents, you know? And I didn't get that, so I went out to the streets. And I found that I found being on the streets and experimenting with drugs. And, you know, we'd break into apartments. I was about 11 years old, man. We'd break into these vacant apartments and we'd get a hefty bag and a stick and we'd pop open the, the refrigerant valve of the air conditioning unit, get that stick just to move the valve and fill up that hefty bag. And we'd go in there and we inhale that refrigerant, bro. And just, we'd pass out and hit our heads on oh, the floor. Oh yeah. You ever huffed in? You ever? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You look like you were Hippie crack, Yeah. Man. You look, you'd be huffing some yeah. shit. Yeah. A potpourri. Yeah. You look like a carb cleaner type <laughs> yeah. dude over yeah. there, time, Ron. Hey, one time I huffed so much, my girlfriend showed up. We were in this trailer huffing for like six hours. and <laughs> Six because, hours. Because that stuff takes the oxygen out of you. And yeah. My, and my face was, per- she walks in and she goes, Ron, she brings me in the bathroom. And I looked in the mirror, and my face was purple. My lips were blue because I didn't have no oxygen left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, yeah they ain't no joke. I'm surprised I survived that part of my life, dude. Uh, we used to make each other pass out. When we didn't have anything like that going on, we'd just get a pillowcase and wrap it around our necks. Yeah, just, you do this one. Yeah, yeah or when you squat down, you take a bunch of deep breaths. You stand up, and somebody punch you in the chest. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> stupid yeah, shit, yeah. bro. Like, we were just trying to find a thrill. And so when you come from a you know childhood like that that's full of trauma and abuse <laughs> and absentee parents and – you know, it, it makes the perfect combination for that lifestyle on the streets, right? Because, you know, and I think that all three of us at some point in some way with the amount of prison time that all of us have, have been a part of and, you know, the, the different aspects of doing prison time. And we've all had that, that belief, that false family belief that we believe it to be. And then where we stick around long enough and you realize it's a facade and, you know, um, I think that originally, this is just my opinion, I think that originally like prison gangs and just all gangs in general at one time had had a good motive for doing it. It was to protect their own. But what ends up happening is, is that the drugs and the women and the alcohol and the insanity that comes with the drugs and the alcohol and the women, it completely has just turned it into something that's just such a um, unreal aspect. That, right, we've, all, <laughs> we've all seen it, right? We've all seen it and. Like hearing your story, and I know many people who've had similar experiences, right? And then as they get older and they get in trouble and they get introduced to the streets, and you look to the older OGs, that's your father figure, yeah. your brother figure. Oh, yeah. and, Always. And, and then when you go to prison, that fault said, hey, brother, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden... You have that thing you've been craving for for so long. It's a family, right? Right. Your yeah, family, it's family sure. life of it. Yeah. You know, people treating you treating you like a human being. They're not making you eat your puke. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah. then and and then the drugs come into play, right? Always. And then we truly yeah. find out what it's about. But that's why we run to that. And I see a lot of people do that. And we see the youngsters when they go into the prison system get used up like that. 
Yeah, right? I mean that, that's that's exactly what happens, right? And uh, they're craving, you know, starving that attention, right? Yeah. yeah. And so now here you are, you know, you, you hit the streets, now you start using, and you know, I mean, you're using weed and smoking weed and drinking, hitting licks yeah. already, 11, 12 years old. For all of our listeners across the country, all around the world, think about that: 11, 12 years old doing meth. Hit licks, right? Like that's the kind of lifestyle that you, that you lived, and you know that's what the streets are, you know. And and the only way for you to make a name for yourself on the streets is, is being a young kid is to be the wildest. Yeah. So what's that time period look like for you when you turn to the streets and now you introduce addiction because trauma it goes hand in hand with addiction, and then the addiction feeds right into the trauma, right? Yeah. And so now we got both these things, and because drugs and alcohol are the solution to the problem, right? They work, right? When I get high, I don't think about that, right? Don't think, don't feel, don't care. Drugs and alcohol work. So why don't you take us to that time period, um, get introduced to the the lifestyle on the streets and what that looked like for you. Yeah, man. So I started hanging out with these older kids, and they like to use. They like to get high on meth, and they were all smoking weed and drinking every day, and I thought that was cool. And I wanted to just be around them and hang out, and so I'd experiment and get high with them and stuff, but I didn't know how to act. And I'd get beat up and they would, you know, they <laughs> you go would, get, get whooped again. and the, the culture at the time, you know, was like, you had to be tough. You had to show that you're willing to fight at all times, even with your friends, you know, and I didn't know how to fight. I didn't understand that concept. Only thing I knew was being abused. Yeah. To me, violence was always something that was done against me. One side. I wasn't the one that yeah. was violent towards others. Right. And so it, it, I was out of my element. I mean, I could take the beatings, and I would. I would just stand there and take it and not do anything, and then they're like, oh, you're a fucking punk. You're a bitch, yeah, you know? You're a pussy. And then I'm like, oh, shit, those words hurt more than these these blows because now my, my reputation's on the line, and how am I going to have friends now? So I remember the last time that I got beat up, it was on my front doorstep. Um, dude just walked up drunk. Called, I went outside. He just socked me up and then called me a bitch and then walked away. And I was just like, fuck. And these other guys are looking at me. You know, and they give you that look. Yeah, they're just like, like, damn, yeah, dude, why damn, didn't you do anything? Yeah, like, yeah. fuck. How you let them just hit you As a matter of like fact, that, I do know? know that look too many <laughs> so, times. Yeah. So I go back in my house and I'm like, and I started tearing up. Not because it hurt what he, when he punched me, but it hurt that the other guys looked at me with that kind of like disappointment. Like, dude, I can't believe you just stood there and took it, right? So I was like, you know what? I made a decision that night. I'm not going to allow this to go the way it's going anymore i'm going to stand up for myself i'm going to be whatever i have to be to get these guys to respect me so i went back out there i stood up to the dude i lost that fight but i gained respect mm-hmm. and i continue to do it and i continue to learn how to be more violent and express that type of violence and i thrived on it and it got to the point where quickly i advanced myself beyond the 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 capacity and the capabilities of my contemporaries and these were older guys and it got to a point real quick where these guys were like intimidated by me like oh yeah they created a monster they a monster hold right? up because I I jumped on it real quick and I just I immersed myself in that culture and by the time I was fourteen I had older guys coming out of prison talking about you're a stone cold killer, you know? And they, they acknowledged me and they would shake my hand and they would give me respect. And, and I just, that was it my felt juice. Good though, huh? Yeah. It on felt top good of the drugs, time, yeah. using the meth and the alcohol and the weed to be able to carry out these missions, you know, getting the reward of their acknowledgement and their recognition was like the super adrenaline rush, you know, yeah. that I needed. And it was like a way to replace that feeling that I was lacking at home with my family, you know, the acceptance, the unconditional love, that I was needing, that I felt like I was getting it finally with these guys, but it's never unconditional. No, there's always conditions. Yeah, Yeah, there's always conditions. So I didn't mind putting my life on the line. I didn't mind taking all these risks and doing all these bad things to other people. Um, To me, it was like worth the exchange because I was in my addiction by then. I was Mm -hmm. addicted to the lifestyle. I was addicted to the drugs and everything that and came the lifestyle yeah that's yeah. a huge thing right it's a huge thing a lot of times yeah. when we you know you get sober right but you still have that lifestyle even when i got sober in prison right like you know i still wanted to communicate and hang out with the dudes making moves on the yard yeah. i still didn't know how to set a boundary with them because i i'm a people pleaser i want everybody to like me right i would still had this problem and my sponsor was like dude you need to carry the i used to hide the big book right i didn't want anyone to see it right just like you always share, Ron, being the sober dude on the yard isn't always the coolest no, guy. It's not no. always the easiest thing to do, right? We're always a snitch. We're the yeah, cops. We're, yeah. you know, we're just trying to better our lives. But, you know, sure. 
we were talking about this today. It was, yeah. it was pretty funny. Ron went down to Cass, right? And every time you go down to Cass, what happened when you went, I went down to Cass? <clears throat> Man, I went down there like... That's the people are going to get mad, but I don't care. Yeah. Um, so we go down to Cass. We take some of the clients down there, and it never fails. I'm down there, and I've seen five dudes that I know from prison, um, different races, that behind the walls, they're somebody. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they come out here, they're, they're at Cass. They're walking around with no shoes on, yeah. Yeah, with burns on their arms. And I was like, from sleeping on the sidewalk, and I was just like, wow. How quick yeah. it shifts, bro. Man. Yeah. How quick how they're, quick it sure. shifts. They're in there changing people's lives and harming people and making decisions and manipulating youngsters to do certain things mm. and calling back calls, having people killed for no reason. How many times have you seen that happen? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> Too many. So it's safe to say that once you get introduced to that lifestyle and you're willing to commit violence at all times and you're thriving on it, you're getting respect from the OGs and everything that comes with that, what also comes with that lifestyle is consequences. Mm. So when did you start experiencing consequences from this? Uh, Okay, so by the time I was 16 years old, I was charged with attempted murder on a police officer. Mm. Um, they frown upon that, like jacking off on airplanes. They frown upon that shit. Yeah, the cops don't like when you try to kill them, so... Real I, I ended up in state prison, you know, real, real quick when I was 17. Juvenile. And I had done, yeah, I had done a lot of juvenile time already. I'd been through all the juvenile halls in the county, different counties and camp programs and all that. The probation, I went to placement, AWOL from, play, like none of that stuff helped me. It just made me worse. I learned how to fight better. The ju- you know? Real quick, the juvenile system is equal or worse than the adult system. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe even a little worse, you know, because right. when you're that young, I remember the first time a juvenile hall was tripped out because I was in a cell, right? But that had, like, pictures of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse painted on the wall. Like, if that was going to make it better, it just made it more creepy, bro. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. you hear everybody yelling and kicking at the doors trying to get out of there, and it's just like you're in an insane asylum and you're, like, a 10, 11-year-old kid, you know? It's yeah. like... Uh, that's traumatic in itself. Yeah, and then you see yeah, your favorite yeah. cartoon characters yeah. plastered on the wall, locked up with you. You're yeah, like, damn, yeah. we're all in jail. Yeah. <laughs> they've got, they've got yeah. Mickey, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up back. You know, I went straight to state prison um, when I was 17, from juvenile hall to state prison. I remember right away, like within the first couple months, I was in ADSEG for manufacturing weapons. Um, real quick, I got introduced into that other side the other aspect of that lifestyle from being on the streets and being a street you know thug and all that and a foot soldier to being in the prison and seeing how these guys operate in there and it's none of my business not anything that i want to condemn or critique but i'll say this much i was very impressionable Mm -hmm. and i was i was totally convinced that that was the life i wanted to live forever and so I made certain commitments and I made, you know, certain uh, adjustments in my life. And I did whatever I thought I, I needed to do to be accepted in that world that I felt like that was my world now, you know, and it was a survival technique. Sure. And I felt like this is how I'm going to survive and I'm not just going to survive, but I'm going to, I'm going to be successful somehow in this environment. And ultimately as years go by, and, you know, I developed into a, a more mature man. I started to, you know, challenge my own beliefs and my own, my own convictions, you know. And a lot of it had to do with my own guilt and feeling like I'm, I'm failing my kids because I'm having kids. But at the same time, I'm trying to do this gangster shit. Right. And it just doesn't mix. Nah, I don't check I'm out. I'm trying to have a wife. But I'm telling her I was married to them first. You know what I mean? You always come second. And thinking that she's still supposed to be loyal to me and good to me. And so I ended up back in prison again for sales and evading, one on a high-speed chase in my minivan. Oh, in you know, a minivan? Yeah, with, oh, the kids, with the kids' oh, with car the, seats in the back. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I'm trying to throw dope out the window. I got scale in my pocket. I got dope all over the floorboard. I can't reach. And uh, yeah, it was a mess, bro. I speak chasing the minivan. Spend, yeah. hey, even you haven't done that no, one. No, not the yeah. minivan. Yeah, not in the minivan. No, There's been no. some other cars, but it wasn't a minivan. <laughs> it wasn't a minivan. Yeah, no chance of getting out of that one. Did six years for that. Lost everything. Lost my wife. Um, my kids got displaced with other family members. I was miserable. 
you know, and so I thought, well, survival mode kicks in. What do I do? What do I do? Well, I'm going to pick up this book right here. This book is going to show me the path. God's going to help me. I'm going to run with the Christian car. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I did the whole Christian thing and I was legit like serious with, yeah. it, you know, I was on the main line. I was going to chapel. I was trying to preach the gospel. I was doing Bible studies. I learned theology, dude. I studied it so, so deep. Like I mean, you're highly intelligent. I could right? break the, the dude Bible is highly down. Intelligent. Yeah, I, no, it. I hear it. I hear yeah. it in your voice. Yeah. yeah. I know how to just break down verses. I can tell you front to back what the Bible says and all that. And I felt like by gaining this knowledge, by joining this new crew or this new clique or this new mm-hmm. cult, yeah. right? This is how I'm going to survive. This is how I'm going to thrive. My family is <clears throat> now going to benefit. I'm finally doing away with this group and I'm going to get into this group. And it might seem like that's what I'm doing now by getting into AA, right? But it's not the case. Now I really feel like I have a genuine relationship with God mm. who is my higher power. And I'm not a religious fanatic. Mm-hmm. I don't down anybody that does have a religious belief. That's fine if that works for them. But for me, based on my prior experiences, I can't do it because I get intellectually prideful when I have all this theological information and I feel like I have this superior doctrine to yours. <laughs> and even if you're a Christian like me, you better be the type of Christian that I am and have the same Or you beliefs. ain't doing it right. Yeah, or yeah. you're just, you're not saved yet, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you ain't overdosing on the Holy Ghost like me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so all that did was it set me up to understand something profound, that my will, even if it seems like it's God's will, isn't necessarily God's will. And I can't assume to know what God's will is because the whole time I was doing that, I was willing for people to look at me and be dumbfounded. And I had guys ask me like, dude, why are you giving up what you had? Like, and I'm trying to get that, you know, like the youngsters trying yeah, to come up like, in the game I had and they're like, oh, le- yeah, a level yeah. of su- success, quote unquote, yeah, sure. right. In the, in the culture through years and, and, and trials I mean, you and went in, you went, is it so when you get into, um, you know, Christianity or the Bible and this aspect that you're, of your life that you're talking about now, because you went in and out three or four, four prison sentences. Yeah. Was this the fourth one? That the third was the one? second. Oh, this was, this was that number was two. This, that was a six year stretch that I did. Okay. Six and, year caught your attention. Six I, piece yeah, of catchy. I was like, you know what? God's going to do a miracle. He's going to bring my wife back. I did the time, stayed in prayer, stayed in fasting and doing all that stuff, teaching and preaching and doing all that. Get out. She's still on her, on her shit. She's still in her addiction. She's in jail. She calls me. She says she wants to go to rehab. I put her in a Christian home. I had my sons with me at the time. We went and tried to get her back. I tried to restore my wife. You know, I thought I was going to be like Hosea or something. And I was going to be like that prophet that had to go after the woman that was no good. You know what I mean? God's showing them an example of how God is with his people. You know what I mean? Even though we're unfaithful. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to be like God. You know, I'm going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to just love Mary Magdalene. You know what I mean? Whatever. You know what I'm saying? But nah, it doesn't work like that. Like, if that would have been God's will, it wouldn't have ended the way it did. And the fact is, our marriage was already done. Yeah way before I acknowledged it. And I only put myself and my kids through more pain and trauma than anything else because I was so stubborn Mm. in wanting to claim, I'm going to claim this verse right here that's in the book and say, it says right here and telling God, you said right here and I'm holding you to this, that if I get baptized, me and my house will be saved. I want her. Send her back. (laughs) This right right here. You said it, right? And I'm like, and but she didn't come back. She didn't love me. She didn't want to be with me, you know, and so I couldn't accept that. So I told my boys, you want to go with me? You want to stay with her? Well, we're staying with mom. She let them get away with everything. She yeah. was the one challenging me and undermining me. And so yeah. she set it up to where they're like, yeah, I want to stay with mom. So I'm like, fuck, that shit hurt, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I bounced and I got into MMA. I started working two jobs and I was trying to stay just active and I was sober. I was dry sober. Yeah. Um, and I thought I had this faith that was going to sustain me and hold me down. But... Ultimately, the disease, man, came creeping around. Oh, yeah. Like the cunning, baffling, powerful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the snake. You know what yeah. I mean? The oh, serpent yeah. just slid her this oh, way yeah. out. And it's like, come on, let's just go have a couple of drinks. No big let's deal. Let's kick it with these girls that like to get high. Uh-huh. Let's just go to the night. Momo and have some marathon mad sex. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> quick. But I, I was just like, boom, back at it again. You know, sticking needles in my arm, um, drinking every day, partying. Started working at a tattoo shop. And I mean, just on a quick side note, I just I dude, I don't care what you say, but this man can tattoo, bro. <laughs> I'm not gonna shout it out because he told me not yeah, to, yeah, dude. No, but I'm telling you, dude, your work is thank you, bro, phenomenal, yeah, dude. It's, it's 
It's Thank excellent. you. It's That's excellent. the one good thing that I did get from prison. Yeah. Uh, I started doing <laughs> if that. If you could tattoo with that equipment in prison, you get out there and yeah. get some real Single equipment. Some people, though, yeah, yeah, some people can't, but they... If they start learned how to tattoo in prison, then they come out and they use real equipment. They some people can't do it, but right, right, you definitely can. Yeah, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate to be able to continue to to practice the art. Um, but see, working in that environment at the time, I was just it was just an easier way for me to continue to fucking stay loaded. Like, dude, I yeah. was able to tattoo and be high all day. Who doesn't? What addict doesn't want that life? Sounds like sure. a telemarketing get paid lifestyle. And Sounds get like high telemarketing. And my boss mean. never tripping. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, shoot meth tattoo dude. for twenty hours. Yeah, yeah. So I was delusional, <laughs> thinking like this works. I can do this. You know, I'm and, functioning. Yeah, I'm functioning. And then uh, I end up way of doing that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> then I end up getting loaded and doing some stupid shit. Get charged with threatening some Buddhist monk at a temple. He said I was going to blow up his temple, whatever. I know allegedly. I scared him because I went in there, you know, allegedly he said yeah. I was going to blow up his temple, but I went to prison, man, because it like I got no action, bro. If I if I get charged with anything, yeah, oh yeah, they're never going to take my word over the accusation. Like, oh, never. My no, record. Not over a monk. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. you lose. Yeah, yeah, you, especially yeah, you, not over a monk, dude. Yeah, I mean, this peaceful guy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to believe this bald guy yeah. or this bald guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the tattoos on the neck. Yeah. You put the monk on the stand, he ain't going to say nothing, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he might be one of them monks that don't speak for uh, a year. Yeah, dude. So, I, you know, just doing stupid shit, being high, wandering around, going to places I shouldn't have been, you know? Um. The other one was uh, felony resisting arrest. You know, I went on a trip. I was in psychosis, bro. Like, I thought I was the Messiah. I felt like God had chosen me to take over the world, and I was going to conquer the nations and wipe out the government and all mm. the all the the agents of the government and all the like. Dude, I was tripped out, yeah, right? You were, so tri- you were tripping. I went on a rampage, man. I went to go see my sons. I I I knocked on the door. Nobody answered. And I went to visit them where they live, where they live with their grandparents and their mom. Their mom was in the hospital. She had just wrecked her car at the time. And I just, for just some dumb reason, I looked down. I see the chair right there in front of the porch. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I grabbed the chair and slammed the window. Just busted the whole front window, right? I'll get in. At like midnight. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't even trying to get in. I just was wanting to wake them up. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> hear this. And they all come on. They're like, what the hell's going on? I'm like, hey, man, I'm just fucking around. It's me. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, go ahead. Call 911. I'm waiting for them boys. I got something like thinking, I, I'm going to fucking take them down. You know? Yeah. <laughs> they show up. Man, it didn't go good for me, bro. No. Yeah, they beat the dog shit out of me. Like, I got beat up so bad, and they tased me about three times. They just mopped me, bro. Just, yeah. like, totally mopped me. I didn't do nothing to them. They just, they, they got me. And um, But they hit you with the resistance. I got charged, of course, yeah. because they had to take me to the hospital. So they yeah. had to justify why I looked so beat up, right? Couldn't see out of one eye. I was all busted, bloody everywhere. So uh, I ended up going to court, man, and, and I'm thinking, this can't be happening. They're going to drop the charge. They're going to drop No, they didn't drop it. I went to prison for a felony resisting arrest on my last case. Mm. But it's because I was high. I was high on meth, and I was drinking Mike's Hard, hard Lemonade. Oh, the Mike's Hard Lemonade. Yeah, and I was mm-hmm. up for a few days too long, mm-hmm. and I was in my psychosis trip. And that psychosis lasted a while, bro. I, know, I realized that psychosis, it lingers. It doesn't just last while you're high or until you just come down. Because even months after, oh yeah, I was in there writing manifestos. And indictments against the world. You know what I mean? Like against the elites and the world leaders. And like, you guys are all on this paper. You guys are charged and found guilty. You know what I mean? I'm the judge. (laughs) This is their condemnation, right? Hey, psychosis ain't no joke. Hey, but I'll tell you right now, do post acute withdrawal from from any drug? Do post acute withdrawal, especially from meth, post acute withdrawal. That's after you stop using, before the brain levels itself out, the neural pathways and the dopamine and the pleasure center of your brain, it, depending on the frequency and how much you've been using and for how long you've been using, dude, that shit could last a year and a half to two years, sure. bro, before. Yeah. The brain's marvelous. It'll heal itself. But that ain't no joke. No. It well, what's scary about that, and I can hear it in your voice, so... There's that point of that psychosis, right? When we're doing, when we're writing the manifestos and we're yeah. we're coming up with the grandiose plans, right? <laughs> yeah. But then when you when it when the brain is healing itself, and that scary moment where you don't think your brain's gonna snap back, where like you're in enough yeah. reality to know that this has all been bullshit, yeah. but I'm not all the way back yet. <laughs> Am I stuck here? Yeah, right. The old all, right. You know what I'm saying? Then you're all paranoid yeah. that this is the way it's gonna be for the rest of my life. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure, man. Frightening. For sure. Especially when we, you're having you know. like visions yeah, and, know, you know, dreams, prophetic revelations, you know what I mean? <laughs> Coincidental things happening, like, oh, that's a sign, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a trip. So <laughs> I went back out and, you know, I kind of phased out from that whole psychosis trip and I just went back to work, back to the shop. And of course, back to drinking, back to smoking yeah, weed. It comes together. And I'm the type, and I come from this kind of background where, like, in the culture, it's like, Oh, this dude's doing good, man. He's doing real good now. He just smokes weed and drinks now. California like, oh, yeah. sober. He's doing good. Like, California sober. That's not doing good. You know no. what I mean? I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> like, I love to freaking get shit-faced, right. like yeah. drunk, drunk. Yeah. And and the reason why I like to use meth sometimes, most of the time, is because I can continue drinking. You know what I mean? Like, you drink longer when you're high on some type of upper. So it all goes hand in hand. And of course that's what ends up happening. I'll start with weed. I'll start with alcohol and eventually I'm sticking needle in my arm, you know, and I'm doing big fat shots of syrup, you know, or I'm smoking out of the bong, you know, and like, just so I can level out. And now I'm riding this wave and I feel like I'm good. I'm still sleeping at night and I justify it. I can sleep. I can eat. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm arrested. I'm showering. Yeah. Yeah, I'm working. I eat. My work's coming out legit. I'm not digging nobody out. Yeah. I'm doing, yeah, I'm responsible. I'm a good functional addict. I don't have a problem like this dude that's in the gutter, that's on the street side, you know, stolen goods and stuff like that and breaking into people's houses. Like, I consider myself superior to all of that. So that was my delusion. I was in denial about the problem that I had for so many years, like 27 years of self denial. And it all, accumulated to a certain point where because of my drug use, because of my psychosis trips, because of me being in survival mode and trying to manipulate like the actor scenario, you know, wanting to conduct the orchestra and set the stage and have the actors perform accordingly, you know, me wanting to be God in my own life only caused others to despise me. And I made certain tactical decisions that weren't favorable to me. And the people that I used to be very on very good terms with, all of a sudden they become my my opponents because they don't like the way I'm living. And now because I put myself in a position to be judged, to be, you know, um, critiqued and, and evaluated, right, based on performance, because it's always that. You're always ba- you're always evaluated based on your current status. Mm-hmm. You're only as good as your in last that, game, right? bro. Yeah. that's it. So, Tell the girls that so all the time. When you when you switch up or you change and you're like deviate from the from the original format, and it's like, no, no, who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah, you know what I mean. You're yeah. not gonna go over here and just fucking tattoo and live your life and happy life and still get high. No, and, that's not you happening. Know? And, and think the, you're better than me. yeah, and think you're better than me. And the devil's gonna come collect his due. You know what I'm saying? And that's ultimately what happened to me is that I thought I could have my cake and eat it too. And it doesn't work like that. And God was teaching me a valuable lesson. If I put myself back in that situation, regardless of the fact, like I'm asking for more trouble because I'm tempting death with my life. I'm tempting the the inevitable outcome of destruction because there is nothing good that's going to come from that. That's all it's always ever been for me. It's been death and destruction repeatedly. You know, the violence and the pain and all that stuff. And like, I have trauma from what's been done to me as a child. I have trauma from what I've observed happening to others on the streets and in prison. And I have trauma from what I've done. Right? You traumatize mm-hmm. yourself sometimes from the shit that oh, you yeah. yourself oh, do. No for doubt. Sure. You know? For 100%. And, and all that did for me was just, it cultivated this, this anxiety, this depression, this overwhelming sense of guilt, remorse, shame, self-pity, worthlessness. And at the end, ultimately, and I'd like to say, well, it's because I got betrayed by this person, that person, you know, um, I had nowhere to turn, nobody to trust. And so I've said, fuck it, my life is at an end. It wasn't just that. It was inside of me, internally. I felt like I deserved it. And so I took out my knife, stood in front of a mirror, and stabbed myself in the neck repeatedly, slit my wrist open, took about 30 of my blood pressure pills, whatever was left in my bottle, chewed them up, swallowed them, and stood there and just bled. I was ready to go. Like, I was totally yeah, ready to yeah. check out. And when I when I went to the hospital, where they, I woke up after surgery. Okay, so... After surgery, I wake up in this gurney. They just rolled me out of the surgical room, and I'm, like, mad, right? I'm pissed off because yes, I'm like, you're still why around. am I still here? Can't even get that right. Because right. the last thing I remember was standing in a pool of my own blood and just knowing that 
my my body's just gonna eventually you know i'm just gonna drain you know what i mean because i was leaking i thought i hit that main artery right here the carotid artery um and the the lady that the surgeon that did my surgery she said i barely missed it because i stabbed myself so hard the muscle pushed against it you know and you can see the scar yeah Yeah, i can see it like i went in there like i thought i was trying you know i thought i was doing a good job when i got it but you know, I, I mean, bled can you imagine, out. I mean, can you imagine getting a, I mean, you had a crocodile Dundee <laughs> knife, dude. You have that. It was like a regular, you know, pocket knife, like a buck knife. Oh, it was you a know? buck knife. Yeah. Just yeah. standing in the mirror and just. Just digging. Get, yeah. Getting it, bro. Mm. Um, That's pain. That's trauma. That's pain and trauma coming to a head. Guilt, shame, embarrassment, remorse, regret, yeah. trauma, all the levels of trauma, all coming to a point where you're willing to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, after I woke up, I just pulled all the stuff out. Like I had the IVs and I yanked them out, pulled the catheter out. That shit hurt like hell. Oh yeah. yeah I've done that. And oh, yeah. yeah. Jumped off the bed, ran back into the surgical room, was looking for a scalpel or something. Couldn't find it. The nurses were ecstatic. They were like, what are you doing? What, calm down, sir. Calm down. And I just grabbed a syringe. I seen a real big syringe and I don't know what was in it, but I just grabbed it and just stabbed myself in the chest with it. And uh, I was in such a hurry, dude, that I just didn't even take the cap off. Like, and it just folded on me. So I was like, damn. <laughs> that was my one last chance. This you know is it. They, there it is. Yeah, and they sedated me, and I woke up I woke up a couple of days later in another another hospital. And that's when, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you went to another hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, you got to go, brother. Yeah, we got to get yeah. him out of here. We got a special hospital. Ativan and a transport. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My sister that's been in recovery for the past few years, Joanna, you know, she's the one that went through a lot of the trauma with me early on. And she's been having a rough life as a result, too, of the things that happened to us. And um, she's got recovery now. And she's been three years in the program. Big shout out. Yeah. Big shout out, Joanna. Yeah. yeah, Big shout out. Look at that smile. Yeah. That's that was them, too, man. It's a trip. It's a trip because how she I think she was the first one that, that introduced me to weed. I caught her smoking weed in, in, in my mom's apartment in the bathroom. I wanted to go swimming. And she was supposed to take me down. And, and I opened the door, and she's there smoking a joint. And I closed the door, and she goes, come here, come here, hold on. Come here, come here. And she goes, I'll let you smoke. Don't tell on me. Yeah, don't say nothing. You better I'm like, not all right. She's yeah. like, here, hit it. And I remember yeah. that's where it all started, right? So um, not to blame her or anything, but I think she was the first person that introduced me to to, um, to smoking weed. And she's also the one that that extended, you know, the hand of AA to me. And she used to tell me, like, bro, why don't you go to a meeting? And I'm like, I'm not going to your fucking cult. Yeah, like, I'm, yeah, not, yeah, I'm, I'm not cool going that. that. Like, you guys and are weird. Yeah, you guys are a bunch yeah. of weirdos, right? <laughs> and, uh, we dude, are. all the times yeah. I was in prison, I used to see the AA book, and I never wanted to read it because I got the Bible. I got the Bible, you know? And it was there the whole time. And um, she's like, bro, why don't you go to treatment? So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot, you know? And I came out. Came out to Arizona. Got into treatment. And it wasn't easy at first, you know. I yeah, still, it wasn't easy, yeah. man. So, yeah, it wasn't easy, man. Tell us. Yeah. <laughs> I want everybody. <laughs> it wasn't easy. When we talk uh, about how the, the the brain is hijacked by drugs and alcohol, I mean, it is no joke. You think you just yeah. stop and everything's going to be okay? That's one of my favorite things. Not favorite things, but when I hear people say in six, seven days of detox and I'm good now, I got to get me a job again. Right. That's good. Right. No, dude, it is not good. You haven't even got started yet. So you come out from the hospital, major suicide attempt. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, a cry for help. This was I want to die. This isn't a cry for help type suicide. God has bigger plans for you. Um, you come out here, you into a new treatment facility out in Arizona. And what happens when you get there, man? Dude, I was a mess. I was a mess, and I, I wasn't I wasn't happy within myself. I did, just didn't have any peace. Um, I still wanted to die, and I had a plan. And I voiced that to somebody, one of the staff members. He's like, all right, hold on, man, sit down. I was like, just get my phone, bro. I'm out of here. He's like, wait, why? What are you, where are you going? What are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to fucking take off. I'm going to get me some blues. I'm going to fucking go die somewhere. He's yeah. like, no, <laughs> wait a minute, bro. I can't let you leave. <laughs> yeah. like, you have to have a seat. So we sit there. We sat there and chopped, chopped it up. You know, shout out to Colin. He was working there at the time, and um, he related to me, bro, big time. He knew where I was coming from. He'd been around. He'd done a lot of time. He experienced a lot of the same shit that I did. And I got I got open with him, and he was real with me. 
And at the end, I thought I felt better, and I was like, yeah. all right, I can go back to my room. And he's like, nah, bro. Nah. You got to wait. Crisis is on his way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, brother. Yeah, so I got snatched up, and I was gone for yeah, a I'm week. I'm glad man. I was able to de-escalate the situation, yeah. but transport's here. We'll yeah. see you back in yeah. 72. Yeah. We'll hold the bed for you. See you later, bucket. Yeah, and I was gone for a whole week, bro. They kept me for a week. Oh, they kept you for a week? A whole week, yeah. yeah they did. Yeah, they had some stuff to straighten out. Yeah, yeah, had some stuff to straighten out. Went back, though, and I just embraced the program. You know, my sponsor, Lee. Shout out, Lee. Yeah, love you, bro. Yeah. He uh, he showed up for me. And um, I thank God for that, for that, you know, for that man doing that for me. He didn't have to. He gave himself um, to be of service to a man who was sick and suffering. And I learned from his example, and I do that today. And that's what I learned, how God works through people. Um, to reach out to those who, who are in a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, you know, and then, and then from that emerges a man brimming over with, with confidence, right? And self-reliance and contentment and contentment, right? Mm -hmm. I love it when you say that quote, yeah. bro. And it's so true because I couldn't have never imagined that this is where I would be in such a short amount of time. It's been eight months. My life has got exponentially better. Like I have so much to be thankful for today. What God is doing in my life. And like I said, I'm not religious. I do respect, you know, religions and people's beliefs and faith. And I still like the Bible. I do read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. And another books like the Book of Enoch. I love that book for some reason. It's real trippy. It's like apocalyptic, you know, mm -hmm. and all that doomsday <laughs> shit. I love that. Um but I love God, bro, and I feel like I have more of an authentic, organic relationship with God because I don't have to pretend and fake in front and put on a different, you know, costume when I'm in front of people talking about God and then when I'm, you know, by myself or when I'm in prayer circles, like, speaking in a whole nother vernacular. You know what I'm saying? Like, God knows me, and, like, I talk to God like he's my dad because that's how I see him. He's a dad I've always had that I just didn't know it. Yep. And... And I ask him like, Dad, I want this, I want this threesome. What's up? Can I get these two chicks? Like, yeah. I do. Yeah. I pray for it. Yeah. I don't know. I necessarily get it, right? Yeah. But I'm willing to take that. Like, yeah, but it's worth to try time. to ask. You yeah. know what I'm saying? He's my dad. I might want a whole harem like that. Yeah. I want to be like King Solomon. Let me get 700 wives. Like, yeah. what's up with that? You know what I'm saying? Solomon had it. Why can't I? There's a verse in the Bible that says... Um, it says, um, you're my son. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. I'm like, I'll take the nations. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let me get them. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm the Messiah, but I'm like, if that spot's open, I'll, yeah. I'll volunteer. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> can I apply for the position? You know, um, I just, I have like this, this whole different outlook about it, man. Like, I don't know what God's going to do in my life. I don't know what is in the future for me. All I know is that he has shown me so much favor, so much mercy. There's so many instances in my life where I should have been long gone by now. I should either be dead on death row or at least doing an LWAP somewhere, yeah. right? And, like, there's been many attempts on my life. I've been shot at a point-blank range. I've shot myself. I've stabbed myself. I've And that's fucked up, right? Because that's the only time that's <laughs> happened to me is I've been shot and stabbed, but I did it to myself both times. Yeah. Um, boy. Yeah, I've been in shootouts. I've, I've been facing charges with life sentences, you know? Um, I got jumped one time by a bunch of dudes with guns and they pistol with me and busted bottles on me and they were going to shoot me. And for whatever reason they did not somebody said, no, nah, don't blast them. Just pistol with them. And that's what he did. And I'm here. Um, so many times people have hated me and hated my life to the point where they're willing to kamikaze and just fucking do me in a broad daylight in front of God and everybody. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen that way. Right. And so I know where my blessings come from. And today I don't live in fear of death because I have not just escaped death, but I've been given a reprieve. Mm -hmm. I've been given a pardon. I'm a condemned man who has been pardoned today. And I thank God because whatever reasons he has, that's the reason why I'm here. And I want to fulfill that purpose. And so far it's been great just experiencing being of service to others and carrying this message of recovery to others, letting people know that there's a solution, that this book is not Holy Scripture. It's not inspired authoritative word of God, but it is something that will definitely suggest that you do find yourself connecting consciously with the higher power, which is the creator, the source of all life, whatever that, however that looks like yeah. to the particular person. It's all inclusive. And, and that's the message that, that I want to share with people is letting them know, like, this is how it worked for me. This is how it worked for the guy who showed me. 
and so on and so forth, all the way till Bill Wilson and the first 100 guys, right? Um, it's powerful stuff, man, and this is how God is working in my life. I, I really, really enjoy the reward of being able to do stuff for other people, not expecting anything in return. Being able to bear witness of the changes that I see in other men's lives, you guys inspire me. You know, when I hear you speak, when you guys come over, like I first met you guys when you guys went to the facility to share and run meetings and stuff like that, and I was just super inspired, man. Because I was in that in that seemingly hopeless state of mind yeah. and body still. Like I was still recut, like like trying to get my bearings. You know what I mean? Like I was still trying to like kick being high. You know what I mean? Like get get off of the yeah. drugs and alcohol. And when I seen you guys, I'm like, dude, these guys are shining. They got something. How did they get it? That's what I want to. And then that's so that's the whole point. Yeah, that's why we that. do it, right? right. You know, it's a, it's experience, strength, and hope. And then in hopes, you would say, well, shit. He's been through the same damn things I have. Maybe not the same experiences, people, places, and things, but the core root of it, the same issues, the same problems, the same thing I got, and he doesn't live that way, and the motherfucker happy now? Shit, how'd you do it? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Why don't you give me a call tomorrow, and we can figure this thing out, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great, man. And the thing is, too, like, I've learned also not to take things so personally, so... I've learned to humble myself before God and accept whatever God's will is for me. Like I said, yeah, I might ask him for all these things that I want, but I don't demand it. I'm not like that bratty ass kid. And it talks about that in the 12 and 12 where it's like some people, you know, they have this struggle with God and their faith in God because they were more like those kids that are just spoiled, rotten, and they make a Christmas wish list and Santa don't give them what they want. So now they don't believe in Santa. It's not like that with me no more. Um, I do trust in God's wisdom. And I want what he wants. Like, if he asked me, what do you want for Christmas? I would be like, you decide. Because <laughs> yeah. I yeah. might pick a PS5, but you're probably going to give me, like, 20 better things than that. 20 you know sponsees what I mean? what he's going to get. Yeah. 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 Right? <laughs> um, so I, I just want what God wants in my life. But I do make my request, but I also leave it in, in his hands. And, and the thing about it is if, if I can see somebody change because I'm able to be of service to them, I can never take credit for that. I can never be like, yeah, I did that. I shot that. I gave that. I gave that dude the inspiration he needed. Like, you know, I can't take credit for whatever happens if some something positive comes about me showing up and doing service work. And just like I also can't blame myself if I do my part and that person still relapses and sure. dies because yeah. I've seen that happen as well. Yeah, we all have. I've got sponsees right now that are out there, even though they completed the steps and started picking up sponsees and they went back out. And I'm trying to get this dude back in the program. Man, I love you, bro. Jonathan, if you're out there, just come back home. Yeah. Um, come back. It's rough, man. This shit's a fucking deadly disease, and we've seen a lot of people die. I've seen people die, close friends of mine that were in program that are no longer here because they just gave up. And I know what that feeling's like. I know what it's like to be in that dark place. Um, But it's a lot better. It's a lot brighter, and it's a lot warmer in the light. It sure, sure. is. You know, so just come on home, guys. <clears throat> I just want to say something real quick, you know. We're we're blessed to be able to go into these facilities, right? We get the opportunity to go in just like you are now, right? That paying it forward, I guess, if you want to say. What, two months ago, I was speaking at a meeting, and when I left, I hear, hey, Ronnie, no matter what, and it was you standing there. Yeah. And it had been a while since I seen you. Yeah. Last time I seen you, you were a little skinnier. Yeah. Right? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Wiry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you still had the... Yeah. <laughs> and, there, and there you were, just like there you were, standing in the center of this place, and there was people waiting to talk to you because that's who you are now. You, you're a conductor. You're a connector. You help people. You share your experience. You're employable. Yeah. You're kind. You're loving. And all of your experiences have led you to this moment. And just to sit here and listen to you and listen to how you talk, and you kept hitting that big book, you're making this guy smile. He's, yeah, hey, you know, I like that. Hey, hey, anytime hey, someone makes it hey, his subtle. His ears are going to hurt tonight, hey, man, because he was, every time you hit a big book, yeah, he was, and he looked at me and he was like. Yeah, the subtle references to big books, one words that so lead you right, so into, proud the, of you, right into the steps. I love those. It's 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 unbelievable. What can happen if we get out of our own way and we allow God to yeah. decide what we get for Christmas and we don't pick it? I, I love yeah. how you said that, right? I'm going to sell myself short. Yeah, for sure. And leave it up to you. That's yeah. truly living in God's will, right? Yeah. And that's a challenge we all are going to face for the rest of our lives. Living in our will or living in God's will and not our will. 
what I do know, I don't have the answers, but what I do know is when I serve others, that's God's will. Yeah, it is. When I serve others. I know that for certain. Yeah. For certain. I know in that. In capacity, <laughs> that's what God wants because it all comes down to love, right? Absolutely. So. Yeah. Thank you, I brother. mean, dude. And, but, you know, and so when I hear your story also, too, it's just like it's it's always that belief in God, whatever conception that you have, but it's coupled with the action steps of the program. It's got to be both of them. I can't just read the Bible and think that I can just read it, and then as soon as I read it, everything's going to happen. My girl's going to come back. I'm going to have a great job. I'm going to stay sober. It doesn't work, but we take that faith and that belief and that relationship that you create through reading the Bible, whatever literature, whatever you pray to, prayer, meditation, and then you couple it with the steps, your design for living and the action steps that give you the ability to surrender on a day-to-day basis and to continue to have hope and faith and continue to keep your resentments in check and live, you know, when God's sufficiency and remember to keep the faith when fear creeps back in you continue to use the fourth step and then here we are with relationships everything in life is a series of relationships the fourth the fourth step taught me that i didn't know how to have one but now i know how to have one because i established that with my homework in the fourth step i got to continue to be honest it's the design for living coupled with the spiritual belief of god whatever you choose to call because it's your relationship not mine you put that together, and that's the combo, bro. It's the yeah. works, right? Yeah. Faith without works is dead. Exactly. Yeah. That's the combo. Yeah. You know, faith, you, you have to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's got to go together. And so, man, you graduate this program. You volunteer at this program. They hire you at this program. They move you to a new facility uh, at this yeah. program. Uh, you're going to, you're sponsoring guys at all the different facilities with this program. You're, we chair a meeting together at this program. Yeah. and. And anytime, I mean, basically, you know, I'm, you know, I get pretty busy with soccer, right? But Daniel's my guy, dude. He's, he's my guy, right? Like he basically became the chairman of this meeting just by covering for me. Like I, like this, his meeting, you know? So now I come to support him and we do it together, but you know, you know, I've made it a few, but you know, damn well, that's your meeting. Yeah, it's his meeting. I love it. It's his meeting. It's your turn. That's the juice right there for me is just showing up for the guys. And I know that I have to do these things. And I can't, I can't slack off on it. I can't ever feel complacent about it and be like, you know what? I'm good. You know, I don't have to do this service commitment. I don't have to, you know, go to that meeting. I don't have to call my sponsor anymore. I don't have to work through the book anymore with anybody. Like, I know that I will fucking die mm-hmm. if I don't work this program. And I love myself today, so I don't want to die anymore. And I learned that through this program. So I owe it to myself to continue to carry the message. You know, I don't do it so much because I believe that I have this, you know, special gift and this talent and this calling, you know, to save others. I know that I owe it to the one who saved me to be of service in whatever capacity he deems necessary. And if he wants me to go into the gutter, into the trenches, if he wants me to go and shine some light in the darkest places, the places that I'm familiar with, I'm going to do that until I die. You know, because like my sponsor used to tell me, we're uniquely qualified That's right. to go in and help people in those areas that other normal people could never, they could never touch. Like they, they just can't relate, you know? And I think that's God's wisdom is that he pulls us out so that he can send us back in and, and show the guys how we did it, how we got out. And it's always pointing up, you know, we got to point up to where we get our stuff from, you know, and that's, that's where it's at. It's with God, you know? And I mean, he's out there shining. I mean, he's, dude, I'm telling you right now, I pull up, I pull up to the facility. He's got a sponsee at one table, a sponsee on another table. He's telling another sponsee, you're, you're actually the speaker tonight. So get ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you came to speak tonight. Sit down. You got to get uncomfortable to grow. Dude, it's just so awesome to see it. That's why I go to service commitments on a Saturday night at 7 p.m. or or midday Sunday when football's on, or in the evening time on Sunday night. This is the reason why we all do this. Because if one person, and we got one living example of it right here, if this was the, if you were the only one that was to come out of all the that time spent, then it's all Enough. worth it, dude. And that's why we do yeah. this thing, man. Yeah, so you're an sure. inspiration. And we're talking about your sobriety eight months Right. It doesn't matter. You know, I always tell everyone, you dude, it's a sprite. It doesn't matter. You got something to share. 
day you got three four weeks you got something to share sick dude the people who are in early recovery who are doing the deal who are experiencing the promises the blessings the miracles in their life and who are on fire for this shit are going to be able to reach the ones who are in their first 24 hours you get an old timer, you know, shout out old timers, no disrespect, yeah, but man. when you got 40 years and you're talking about, you know, the same old shit and you got some dude just trying to figure out how to make it for the next five minutes when <clears> someone <throat> in their first six months, eight months, first year can show you how they did it, right? Sure. It becomes more attainable to the newcomer, man. And you're shining that light at all times. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. You're, dude, you're, I'm, I'll never forget when I heard you speak. I mean, you kept it PG tonight. Which yeah, I can respect. Yeah. I can respect it, dude. But you can hear it, dude. Go back, listen to the episode. You can hear it in his voice. Watch it. It's a whole nother level to see him do his thing. Um, man, dude, it's just a blessing to have you on the show. Ron, I love you. You know that. You Continue to follow us. Powerless to Powerful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Look up TikTok. Ronnie, Ronnie, no matter what, the Powerless to Powerful page. Subscribe. If you want to get on the show, continue to drop messages. We'll get you booked in. We're pretty booked up, but we will find time for you. Continue to share the message because recovery is a team sport. And Daniel, I'm, I'm just so grateful you're on our team, bro. I love you and thank you for being here today. Thanks thank you. I love you Daniel. guys too. Thanks for having me. Woo! Good job, baby!